0: Good evening, Jindo. What's new?
1: Everything is new. Haven't you been listening all these weeks, Kirk? Everything is constantly (laughs) new. But our sense of time is the problem. Oh,
0: because you're late again,
1: right? No, I was right on time. You were late today. Oh, okay. But one of the reasons we're starting late, Recording today is because our subject is literally the universe, and we had to figure out what that means. What is the universe?
0: (laughs) We we pick the easy topics, don't we? What do you think the universe is? I think the universe is all of us and everything else that permeates us and life and death, and it's just everything that's not nothing.
1: You have been listening, except the Zen fellow might say that we also have to kind of tweak that perspective a little bit. For example, why are we so caught up in being in nothing? I have a beautiful friend, Severio. He's an Italian physicist. I've known him for years. And he says that a lot of physicists now are realizing that there must be a third nature to reality that is the only explanation for why we exist in a universe that seems to have been Something that came from nothing. The old question, how did something come from nothing? And the answer that many Buddhists came to long ago and many physicists are coming to is that the only answer must be a state beyond both nothing and something that we just have no experience of, so can't get our little tiny brains around but the physicists are really realizing
0: have you ever read the book called flatland by edward edward or edwin abbott what uh it would be like with more dimensions or what
1: a creature from a two-dimensional world would experience in a three-dimensional world no i've never read
0: it oh <laughs> Well, it starts out with, I don't remember exactly, is it a creature, is it a being, whatever, is in a one-dimensional world where there's nothing but points, and then discovers that there can be lines and started freaking out, how can this be? I can't think of this. And then discovered that there can be shapes. It's this wonderful metaphor of how we simply cannot understand something because we're not able to think about it until someone presents it. And of course. Uh, the the physics thing you're talking about, something that's something and not nothing and not something, is hard to get your head around, but maybe somehow we can feel it. Maybe somehow we can experience it without words. And uh, welcome to Zen
1: Buddhism, because what our practices get us to do is not just sit on podcasts and talk about it, but to actually experience a lot of this, or at least get insight uh into this it, literally parts of the brain shut off in zen buddhism or shall we say wire themselves in new ways where our day-to-day common sense experience of the world is experienced in new ways for example the mind uh creates a sense of separation buddhism you've heard me say many times creates a sense of wholeness in which the borders between things seem to drop away Well, it's also true in our experience of this world of coming and going. We live in a world where everything has a cause and it comes for a while and then it's around and then it vanishes, including you and me that have a sense of being born and dying. But much of Buddhism, of course, is about transcending that. What happens? What is a state that could be, shall we say, the the other face of it all? in which the coming and going are like the waves that rise and fall on the sea, but the sea goes on and on and on. We feel we're waves that come for a time and disappear. So we assume that everything in the world is just that, things coming and going. We do not recognize our sea nature, which was there before our coming, during our being, and afterwards. And when we, through Zen practice, recognize our sea nature, Well, we're not all wet. We just keep flowing
0: on and on. But doesn't that lead one to think that there is an eternal self? Another thing about Buddhism, we were not big eternalists,
1: and neither are we nihilists. But it's important to know what what this means. There is a sense of the timeless, which the physicists, again, will agree about. There must be something, you know, the old question, what was before the Big Bang? Or for the religious people or the other religion, what was before God? Obviously, there's something we're not getting. There must be some timeless nature. Now, is that eternity? Eternity means that something is going to be here forever. And we believe all things are changed. So whatever this fertile, ongoing process is, there's something timeless about it. And we just, because we're so trapped in a world where things are bound by time and coming and going, We cannot, again, get our little heads around it. And that's what Zen Buddhism helps us do.
0: I remember when I was young, a question came up that really hurt my brain. So I had been learning about planets and solar systems and galaxies and the universe. Now we know there's multiple universes. But even if our planet is contained in a solar system, our solar system is contained in a galaxy, and our galaxy is contained in the universe— what is the universe contained in?
1: Okay, first of all, a couple of things. The multiverse, according to my physicist friends, is, is, again, a theory. It's conjecture. It's a possible explanation for why this reality we live in is the way it is. But I would just say this. The Buddhists, we don't care, because we sit with what is. If, get this, if there's one universe, we are it, and it is us. And if there's a multiverse... We are it and it is us. So we're fine with it. Whatever is the whole thing, that whole thing is our other face. That's what you don't get. You have Kirk's face and I have Jundo's face. And the clock behind you on the wall I'm seeing has the clock's face. And our listeners have their face. Buddhism tells us that your face is my face, Kirking. And Kirk's. Hmm. Junndoing is me, and we're both clocking as the clock and the trees and the mountains and the stars and nothing gets let left out whether there's only one universe or a multiverse. but your other question was what uh why is the how big is the universe was that it or
0: no what is the universe contained in? It has to be contained in something
1: L- let me approach it this way this th- this is where I'm going to come to our theme today, which is that there are certain fundamental teachings of Zen and Mahayana, which first off, I think, are intellectually understandable and can be explained. But again, you must experience them. The point is not just to listen to a podcast. you got to get on the Zazen cushion, the brain, those sections we spoke about have to rewire a bit, and you have to experience these things, okay? But these views are, I believe, perfectly compatible with what a lot of modern science is telling so let me, let me start addressing your question this week. First of all, I don't know how big the universe is or what's beyond that, but whatever it is, we believe it's just us and we are it. So that's one answer. That's one answer. And if the universe is, shall we say, just itself, it doesn't have to be in anything. But here's the thing I, I want to, to get at. This whole thing about Copernicus, I think Copernicus is the Copernic. Copernican view of the universe uh, might be wrong, and I don't think I'm a religious nut to say that. Can I make an argument for it?
0: Sure, go ahead. But I think a lot of religious nuts criticized Copernicus back in his day, but for different reasons that what you're going to say. Let
1: me see if I can actually make sense. Go back a few centuries, sure. They thought uh, the the sun revolved around the earth and man was the center of the universe. Okay, well, we're pretty clear that that's not the case. So then we ran to the other extreme, and we see, thanks to Hubble, this vast universe that every time we look is just more vast than it was last time we looked. Billions and billions of galaxies, no, trillions of billions of billions of trillions of galaxies. How vast is it? Here's where Buddhism might offer a few points. Number one, we think that it's so vast, and we occupy a tiny spot that uh, we're worthless. We're, we're kind of not worthless, but small potatoes, right? Here's something that many a uh, mathematician or physicist might tell you. The universe has no center. Everything came out of the Big Bang equally. It's like the surface of a basketball, uh, you could say, you know, or a sphere. Every point has equal claim to be the center of this expanding universe all came out of the singularity of the Big Bang equally. Let's put it this way. Not that it has no center. Every point of the universe is equally the center. And you will put a link and you will see that there is actually a mathematical explanation for that. It's like the surface of a balloon or a a ball. Every point is as much the center of the surface of the ball as as anywhere else. And our expanding universe is very much like that. So then when people in the old days made the religious value judgment that man is the most important thing in the universe okay maybe they were wrong that was how they read their good book but then they ran to the other extreme and said oh the universe is so vast and we are as tiny as ants smaller we're we're worthless or small worth no this is an economic value judgment that you are subjectively making there is no reason to put a price tag and say that the moon is worth more than an ant. It's bigger in mass, I suppose. But why do you assume that an ant is only this value and the moon is that value? To the Buddhist, it's all precious. We might say, in a sense, it's all priceless. And every atom, every star, every mountain, every flower is equally of its own precious worth, There is no reason to say that big things, even a galaxy, is worth more than a single pebble. There's no reason to do that except your subjective value judgment. It's like gold is just another mineral of the periodic table until human beings say, no, gold is worth more than steel or uh, uh, carbon, right? But in fact, we see everything as precious. So there's no reason to say that we are we, we are a center of the universe of infinite worth, as is everything else. Why can we not argue that? There's no reason not to say that.
0: So I'm thinking back to the Copernican Revolution, which occurred in Europe. Did... Asians know about this? Did they think that initially the earth was the center of the universe and were they swayed? Did they have their own discovery of uh, what Copernicus discovered or did they learn about this? And did that change the way Zen was approached? I don't think it would have changed the way Zen teachers taught Zen, but did this knowledge, when it reached, let's say, Japan and China and India, Did it have an effect on other beliefs?
1: Well, China, the Middle Kingdom, believed it was the center of the world and the universe. And traditional Buddhism had a model of reality with Mount Sumeru in the middle. And we were again the center of the universe. And there were some Buddhists to this day who still believe that. Zen long ago said, Every place and every atom and every moment is the center of the universe and is precious. And why not? Now, another thing is, if the universe has nothing outside it, how can you say it's big or small?
0: Well, we, we measure the universe in terms of light. So we measure distances in light years because we can tell how fast light is traveling. From different areas. So we know that there is space in space.
1: Yes, there's space in space. But what makes you think that uh, for a geologist, for example, a million years is not particularly a long time? Time is incredibly relative. And if it's all happening in this somehow timeless state, um, who's to say that a, a second is more precious than a million years? A million years is a million years, a second is a second. Who's to say that a hundred light year is far? You know, the old joke, here's the thing. The old joke, it's like an episode of the Twilight Zone where the whole universe turns out to be an atom inside a giant's breakfast table. Mm-hmm. And we pull back, camera pulls back, and we find our whole universe is just there on the table. It's a crumb on the table. And there he is reading his newspaper. Okay? Okay. But in this case, if the universe is everything, there's no giant and there's no table. So there's nothing to say that we are big or small. It is what it is, this universe. And whatever it is, we see it as a precious, multifaceted jewel. Some people say that the universe has to be without value. Einstein heard some beauty in the equations he found. Many poets and musicians will sense some harmony and beauty uh, in the sounds they hear. Biologists will find some beauty in nature. Buddhists find some beauty and meaning in the wholeness of it all. So we see it more not as a meaningless, shall we say, uh, piece of dust that just happened to pop up here and we just happened to pop up here. We find that there is an incredible process going on that somehow resulted in you and me. In Buddhism, it's not true that people say, well, Buddhism is just uh, human beings just popped up here randomly. There's always been in Buddhism some special take that there's something special about being born human. Here we are. It's amazing. Shouldn't have happened. You know all that went into that? Billions of years of evolution that turned out just right. And here we pop up and we look out and this incredibly balanced universal system and the system of nature on our planet, we find something precious here. And it's time that we say it's okay, even if you don't have to be uh, believing in anything more than modern physics if you want to, to be agnostic about it. You don't have to believe in a god with a big, beard in the sky. You don't have to believe the golden Buddha floating in the air on a throne. But there is something fantastic and precious in this universe, and we are sitting at the center, as is everything. Don't let it go to your head, Kirk. You're sitting at the center of the universe on a throne, but so is everything, including a rusty tin can and that mouse in the corner. Everything is.
0: But you're sitting at the center of the universe. Yes. We're all sitting at the center of the universe. Yes. Isn't that a bit solipsistic, though, thinking that everything revolves around us? No, no,
1: no. no. Solipsism is everything is just me and my idea, and that's it. And I, the universe is just my dream. This is a little different. This is literally that it is all our dream. Nothing is left out. And uh, if if you ask me, in, in some way, we are all partitioned versions. We're a partitioned hard drive. If, th- this is getting a little out of Buddhism now, but if you ask me what's going on, all our brains are basically partitioning systems that are kind of dividing up something to make us think that uh, Kirk is over there and Jundo's here, but really it's a, uh, Jundo is partitioned Kirk over here and Kirk is partitioned. Jundo over there and the mouse and the tree and the stone and the star it's it's all this one great thing going on this is this is true about buddhism and we just feel like separate beings we have to come to feel that we are this wholeness and when we do we'll solve a lot of problems on this planet
0: there's just one issue with what you just said it kind of could be a slippery slope to believing in the matrix how can we prove that we're not in the matrix? Doesn't
1: matter. Dogen said that even if this is a dream, hmm. dream it well. And 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 Buddhism does say it is a mind-created dream more than we realize. Even the name the dev- I'm I'm seeing you on a screen right now. You're just light coming off of the screen and I'm assigning an existence to you, Kirk. I assume you're out there. I assume you are. But uh, right now, you're basically a brain-created image I'm seeing that's coming off my screen, into my eyes, into my brain. All we have to do is realize that this dream that we're dreaming is our life. Dream it well.
0: Okay, you've talked a lot about space. I want to talk about time, because this is one of the interesting ideas in Zen, that we realize that all that exists is the present moment. Once the present moment has gone into the past, it doesn't exist. And while we can have memories of the past, mm-hmm. they are gone. The future doesn't exist because it hasn't happened yet. So, in terms of the way Zen looks at time, is it the same that we're always at the center of time? We are on the razor's edge of time. The fa the past
1: is pretty much determined. Even the present, we can't control all circumstances. But it's almost as if we are alive to create. We are a product of creation, and we our job is to create the future. And the choices we make is so much up to us. We can contribute as an individual to making the world either a little uglier or a little more beautiful. And we can determine our own experience of the world. So I see this like, let's, let's imagine life uh, as a painting, and we are not only... Characters appearing in the painting, we are also each have a brush and we all as a group are painting. Now, everything's painting. The moon is painting, the other people are painting, you are painting, I am painting. So I cannot completely determine what this picture will be. But in my little corner, this is my karma here. By my, I can make an ugly painting or I can make a more beautiful painting a more gentle, peaceful, loving paint in my little corner. And if a hundred painters get together, we can paint maybe a a much larger section. And if millions of painters, that is the large section of the planet Earth could do so, we could paint a truly beautiful world. Now, the other worlds out there, we're not responsible for them. We only got this one planet, but we're all painting it together, and. Unfortunately, some people paint ugly things, but as a mass of people, we can create a beautiful world by our choices, by our actions, by our words and our thoughts. This is basic Buddhism 101.
0: So you didn't answer my question. What is time?
1: Uh, According to my clock, it's uh, 628. No, that's uh, that's old Zen joke. That's... uh, yeah. But that's that's actually a true answer.
0: That goes back to Dogen's time when he would look at his watch when someone asked what time was, right? He had one of those incense watches. Ah. Yeah. Is that how they measured time back then, by incense sticks?
1: No, you know, this the whole thing when the railroads came, we got very fixated on time. In the old days, they kind of look at the sun, they go, it's kind of like the afternoon. Sure. You know, and they, they would measure their zazen by the incense stick. So sometimes it was longer, sometimes it was shorter. Yeah. We're the ones who are fixated on time. But we have to learn to see, again, I said every inch of the universe is the center. Every moment is the center of time for us, too, and is precious. The beautiful moments and the sad moments, the happy moments and the ugly moments, all are kind of their own jewel of time. We There's no nothing about science that says you cannot experience each moment being unique and precious. There's nothing about it. It doesn't have to—science does not say, no, every moment has to be uh, one fraction of the entire history of the universe and kind of meaningless. That's a value judgment.
0: Isn't there an idea in Buddhism that there are a certain number of moments in a second? Yes, yes. What is that called? A kasana. Kasana. How long is a kasana?
1: You know, Buddhism had, especially Mahayana Buddhism, had incredibly long visions of time. For example, a kalpa, the universe would come in waves, kalpas long. Each kalpa was sometimes described as if a, a bird passed and, and, and it glanced its wing off a mountain and it did that once a year. The time it would take for the mountain to vanish would be a kalpa, for example, some incredibly long period of time.
0: Okay, while you were talking, I looked up what a kasana is K S A N A. It's approximately 175th of a second. Now, that's actually not very short. If you look at a movie, it's made about 30 frames per second. If you look at a CD, right, music on a CD is sampled 44,100 times per second. So for every second of music, there are 44,100 discrete bits. You know, you're being uh, uh, a little too uh, precise with those old timers.
1: They were trying to say that they're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly small measures. They had visions of the atom in those days. They had visions of universes upon universes expanding outward and eras and and cycles uh, in billions and trillions of years. Look up Kalpa and see how long that is. That was amazing for people a thousand years ago, which is what Buddhism discovered. But Buddhism also said, just like Jundo is Kirk's face over here, every second of time somehow contains the whole thing and every other moment of time we don't think that
0: so this is a sort of fractal view of time then
1: precisely precisely the past and the future are not something over there they are somehow fully expressed here we might say that the singularity that was the big bang never ended it just kind of unfolded it's still everything is everything else now, isn't that what is wrong and with seeing that? Of course, I'm not the bus going down the street over there, and I'm not the planet Jubebibu in the galaxy Sibibibi over there, a few billion trillion light years away. but we all came out of the big Bang, we all are each other what's What is unscientific about saying that?
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.